Welcome to the Scottish Paranormal Podcast. I'm your host Chris and here we'll be delving into the multitude of strange occurrences that happen within Scotland and beyond. You can contact us with your accounts at the Scottish Paranormal Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on all social media channels and you can contact us by either means. Right, hi, we've got Michael Dunning tonight on the show. Um, he's got a website, uh, The You Mysteries. Um, thanks for coming on, Michael. Uh, nice to meet you. And uh, how's things you're in tonight? Nice, Chris. Nice to meet you too. Things are well over here in uh, New England, where I am now. It's kind of a s- covered in the snow on the ground. So, um, but you know, not too bad. Usually, it's a lot more snow than this, but at this point in the year, so I'll take it. <laughs> you're the same. We've had a, a wee bit of snow on and off. Um, it was quite cold for the let's say the last week or so. That's just all melted now. It was, it was today. It was like seven or eight degrees. Um, so I'm hoping that it's, it's, you've probably got a few weeks and it'll be snow again. You know, and over here it's kind of a bit fluctuations in the weather these days, you know what it's like. So, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So, if you want to kind of introduce yourself and a wee bit about your website, and then what I would really like to do is if you could run through obviously the story, um, that you had obviously that, that got you into the U mysteries and, and things like that, and the, the shamanistic side of it and, and things as well. Um, when I, I can, somebody put me onto your story and your links to your, your website and stuff like that, and it was just as I said, it was quite synchronistic because, um, that day I'd been at Roslyn dropping my dog off, and somebody just popped a message to say, You need to get this guy on. And I had a look through, and the first bit of the story, um, linked to me because obviously, as I explained to you, I, I surf up in that area and I know the area quite well. And so that's when I get dropped your message. But then when I said it was at Roslyn that day, and you'd mentioned that there's a like a kind of large yew tree down there, um, really, really old. I was there. I went down there um that day. So it was really kind of synchronistic and I kind of thought like a, um I need to get you on. And I was really intrigued with the story. I heard a bit of the story, um, and there's a good parts that I'd like to ask a few questions about, but um I'd like to hear kind of the, the full kind of run of it and, and go for there. So if you want to do a wee intro first, then we can you could run into it if you want and Sure. Yeah, no, it's yeah, great, great that you were in Rosalind just when you got that message. That's yeah, definitely synchronistic and pertinent, and because uh, it's a powerful place there, and you know that you there is really uh, we call it the mother you, <laughs> and you know it's it's a it's a really it's a very very stunning old yew tree, and there are many more in the in the glen actually, quite a few yews in that glen, so. Um, We've done some U Mysteries uh, trainings there and actually, you know, used the Glen and all the U sites to 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 move through. And it was, uh, you know, it was a very, very wonderful experience. But but yeah, the U Mysteries are something that um, it, it's, you know, creating a mystery school is, a, is, is something that uh, I was kind of reluctant to do. But over the years, just with the nature of the work, it, it seemed like the the only way or the best way to sort of pre- present the work. Mm-hmm. So that that the U Mysteries has kind of grown out of my own direct experience. Mm-hmm. It took place, as you know, in the north of Scotland. It began in the north of Scotland, you know, back in um, back in 1987, and I can go back and yeah, yeah. cut the story in a minute, but. Um, from there, the experiences led me back to Edinburgh. And in Edinburgh, you know, my health was fairly shattered at that point from that experience. Mm-hmm. 
and um I had quite a bit of help from from friends who realized I was struggling and having a difficult time staying incarnated and able to manage myself in the world mm-hmm. and through a series of events uh with a with a partner actually she pulled me out of Edinburgh in, into East Lothian mm-hmm. which I didn't know anything about I had no originally from Glasgow I came over to my family traveled over to Fife early on to Dunfermline and I went to art school in Edinburgh so Edinburgh was a whole new experience for me and then and then East Lothian I knew nothing of because my parents were west coast and you know they didn't really know the east side very well so so East Lothian was quite a magical place to to go to um beautiful um sort of bucolic and rolling hills very lovely near the sea uh, where I was and it was I've ended up being a very healing place for me. And it was where the this ancient you is located or where this ancient you is located. Yeah. And that was, um, at the moment I'm writing a memoir about all of that. It's taken me quite a long time, but I was kind of led to the you by a tree surgeon, strangely enough, who uh, we were in the pub and, you know, one thing led to another and we ended up in the you about three o'clock in the morning. And it was quite a dramatic experience for me. And, from then on the next morning i knew i had kind of come home to this this great being had kind of called me and i went back the next day and almost 10 years went by of spending time there and being called there and then after that that took me to about 2003 and from there i was um sequence of events led me to the usa Mm -hmm. so i was just thinking before i came on with you that in april that'll be 20 years i've been here which seems incredible now to me that I would end up being here for 20 years. But, but, but the reason I'm saying that is that this was the, this was the place that helped to birth the U mysteries in a way, mm-hmm. somehow coming away from Scotland um, and coming to this other country that was, has a different kind of mindset. There was, there was something about freeing about, about coming to the USA mm-hmm in a way saying you know people would say well tell us your story what's what happened you know we want to hear about it and i had been you know not really thought that that would be a story i would tell so i started telling the story about you know 20 years ago when i first came to the usa mm-hmm. and things built from there i got invited to workshops to teach workshops and slowly over a period of years i sort of developed a language that where i could communicate what had happened to me yeah. And that, that language kind of gradually solidified into a, a, into a sort of set of principles that I could teach in workshops, mm-hmm. sometimes very short and very brief, say, in, in, in events on the West Coast of the USA, other times for longer, longer chunks of time where, where, where the U Mysteries now has sort of, uh, 10, sort of 10 modules to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it becomes a little bit more involved. So that's a sort of, that's a sort of brief sort of sketch yeah of 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 where where it is now and, and now now i'm still planning to teach you mysteries again soon um of course the last few years sort of put a stop to that and you know things are now resuming slowly so uh, i'll be back in scotland to teach the you mysteries um probably i'm thinking probably next year at this point um i'm not sure if it's going to happen this year um I'm also, I also 
uh, I'm a craniosacral therapist, which is um, it's like a form of body work that was developed originally out of osteopathy. Mm-hmm. So that has informed my work a lot as well. Being involved in the healing arts on virtually a daily basis yeah. um, uh, has really has really helped me to consolidate and and. So there's a kind of been a marriage, a sort of blending, a union of of various strands to bring this new mysteries um, that I needed. It wasn't just one thing. So shall I kind of jump back to the 87 and go? Yeah, yeah. If we want to jump back there and it, we could progress and I'll, I'll ask some questions as we go. Um, sure, just please interrupt me. Yeah, interrupt me at any point. It's a, it's a story with, you know, various, various uh, chapters. So... Yeah, I was totally intrigued when I, when I, when I, heard, when I heard of it. Um, and sometimes I don't like hearing the stories beforehand for because you might not ask the same questions because you um, some people like hearing the story beforehand, but I like kind of hearing it first off as much as I can for the fact that um, if you know the answer, that you might not know the you might not ask the question again and, and things like that. So um, yeah. I was really, really intrigued by it. Um, so yeah, so if you want to kind of go back to even what took you up there and and go for there, or where you think the journey started for yourself, and you can you start for there? Yeah, I'll start. I could start. Just give the. I think it's a really good place to start. Is it is it really kind of at the beginning, and and I think it paints a kind of interesting picture, in a number of ways, and um, you know, coming from a working class background and not really having access to these sorts of concepts or these sorts of experiences, you know, I think it's an it's a useful way to begin, but. You know, I had, uh, I suppose, let's go back to Edinburgh and art school, which is what was really the kind of pivot that swung me up there, really up into Thurzo area. Mm-hmm. I had been, you know, as an art student, there's a kind of naivety about that. You know, you kind of come through art school and you have a proclivity to, to, to as, as an artist, you know, and you, you come through thinking this, that, and the next thing that you're going to be, you know, soaring out of art school into into creating great masterpieces that are going to sell and you're going to get shows and galleries in London or something like that. Of course, that's not what happens, you know. So you come out and you go on the dole, which is what, <laughs> what we all did, you know. And, you know, and so we sort of 80, 86, I finished art school. And and it was around about, you know, I think an important piece to put in here because it comes, it, it links later, was the Chernobyl disaster. Um, which took place in April 1986. Mm-hmm. So while I was at the art school, this great calamity had taken place um, that we were all extremely worried about at the time, of course, and you know, taking iodine pills and things like that at the art school, and everybody was kind of panicking about it. And it was a big deal. And um, so when I left art school, went on the dole, I'll pick up that piece in a minute because it's relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, as you, as you, you're too young to maybe exactly to to be in that around at that time. But the the government, the Tory government, had initiated a I can't remember exactly what it was called, like job training scheme or something like that. YTS. YTS. That what it was, right? YTS. And then, yeah, I can mean that. Yeah. So, so you know, they 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 caught a lot of us. You know, my my only interest was get up. You know. Going to my studio, which I had in, in Rose Street in Edinburgh, an old abandoned flat uh, that was falling to pieces, and making art. That's all I wanted to do. I didn't want to do anything else. So, and you know, you needed time to do that. You know, you needed the day to, to sit there and contemplate and, yeah. you know, all of the stuff that goes on in your, in your young head, you know. And 
of course, I got the letter eventually, hauled in to the job center to the, and told that I would be, I would either have to take one of their schemes yeah. or I, was, I would lose my, my dole money, basically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that's what, how it went, but, you know, it's a long time ago. And I remember... Um, Give me two seconds. I've got my, my, my husky here is... Um, she's <laughs> asking me... I, I took her in here because she was sitting in the, the living room. She was herself, so they just come over. And uh, she was lying sleeping. Now she's like, what out? So come and see. I'll, I'll, I'll let you see her. Come here. Come here. <laughs> it's a 17-month-old husky. I'm going to top up the house. I'll let, I'll let you see her first before I... Let her over. Oh. You say hello. Oh, beauty. Sorry about that. I usually always keep her out, but uh, tonight she had just had a shower and she was like kind of curled up. <laughs> Every all the kids are away to bed and stuff, so as I come out. That's right. It's kind of late. You where you are? It's at quarter past nine, isn't it? By now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she was fine. She was lying there, but she's kind of I kind of heated it up before I came in, so it's probably too hot for her. But she's in quite a good. So do apologise. <laughs> well, don't worry about it. I have a cat here, so she might she might make an appearance at some point as well. <laughs> We could get another interruption if she's decides right. to jump, jump on the computer or knock it over or something. So <laughs> anyway, so, so yes, yeah, so got caught, and um, you know, to to kind of set the tone of the what how how I ended up up north. Um, I was looking around; the jobs were pretty bad. So there was one that a friend of mine had been caught a couple of weeks before me, maybe a month before me, at the King's Buildings at the University in Edinburgh was redesigning their natural history collection, which was in pretty bad shape at that time. And so he had been involved in, 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 you know, building these models, you know, the tree of life to look at all these kind of mollusks and all the way up to the, to the human, the so-called pinnacle of the human realm, of course, you know? So, so I jumped in on that and I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to do something, I may as well do something that's vaguely interesting, you know? So jumped in on that, but it, the job was just, they ended up just becoming, what they were expecting was just far too ambitious from, you know, a couple of artists just out of art school and the kinds of, you know, the, the displays and the kind of quality they were looking for. I mean, we were, we were artists. I, I studied sculpture. We were not designers. Mm. So, so we were kind of struggling to, to get this thing happening and we were starting to get a little bit despondent. Mm. And my friend Ewan, which actually incidentally means yew tree, which mm. is kind of strange. There's a lot of that goes on in this story. But he had said to me, listen, I found a way of getting the hell out of this hellish job. The only way we can get our dole money back is to take a job outside of the scheme mm-hmm. uh, that's temporary. And then, and you know, it's not knowing to be temporary, but with, at least we've taken a bona fide job. So mm-hmm. if we take that job and we do it for a seasonal planting, it's a tree planting job, he said. It's a seasonal thing. We take the seasonal thing. 
we can jump on the bus, go up to this godforsaken place up that I'd never been to, up the middle of nowhere on the coast near Thurzo, plant a bunch of trees. Apparently you can make 50 quid a day, which in those days seemed like a lot of money to me, you know, 50 quid a day back in then. Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. Back then, you know, of course that ended up not being true, but so, um, and then we get the bus back, sign on and go back to make an art again. So it seemed like a great, a great plan. So off we went, Ewan and I up on the bus and, and we were taken, once we arrived in Thurzo, we were taken to this godforsaken, to me at the time, having been used to Edinburgh, just looked like a barren landscape to me. You know, there was, it was just, it looked like a World War One image from the Somme or something. You know, it was just mud everywhere because they were planting these trees. It was all these tree planting plantations that they were used, you know, for tax dodges for people and things like that. You know, it was all sorts of, you know, speeding the trees up for growth and things. So we were taken to, no idea what the accommodation would be. We're taken to this little um, area of, of earth in the middle of a, off our dirt road mm-hmm. by a massive field with just two caravans on it, two dilapidated, broken down caravans, no windows. Our one had no windows. I mean, I think it had some, but they were mostly broken or not existing at all. The door was hanging off the hinges. There was mm-hmm. no toilet. There was no running water. There was no light. It was pretty bleak. Mm-hmm. And to add insult to injury, on the way there, we had driven right past Dunray Nuclear Reprocessing Plant, <laughs> you know, which I thought, wow, this is quite the place that, that, that we're being taken to. And there was something in that about in the back of my head, a significant about that, that I thought, interesting, you know, it's, you know, being up there in that place somehow had a significance to me, you know, after the Chernobyl disaster the year before. But I wasn't fully consciously aware of that at the time. But that comes into play in a little in a little while. So I think it was quite near the village of Ray. I think you and I had talked about this. Yeah. And it was, you said, was it Brood? What was the name of the place? I don't remember. I'll need, I'll need to double check again. Uh, but there's a, there's a, a, a forest or a wood that's just further. It's, it's kind of um, south of Ray. And the yeah. hill south of Ray, roughly. Aye. Can't that remember could, the name yet, but I'll go back and remember it. Yeah, I mean, of course, there was nothing, and the trees didn't exist at that time because we were planting them, you know. So, so it was just. A, I mean, other forests might have been there, but where we were was very barren. I mean, you couldn't release. Really, I didn't. The remember. funny thing was, sorry to cut you off, but the funny thing was when I, I heard about your story to start off with, and I, and I kind of thought trees and dirtle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's the most. That's the unbelievable part of the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is really, isn't it? Yeah. Windswept and stuff like that. <laughs> So sorry, sorry to cut you off there, but that was. No, a- but it's a good point. It's a good point because you know that's just not not their natural. I mean, that's probably why they had to plant. I mean, I don't know this. I'm guessing maybe that's why they had the plantations more inland. Yeah. You know, I don't. I have no idea how it works, but certainly my memory. I actually went back there, something like maybe five or six, maybe seven years ago now, to try and find the location, and I mean, I think I did. But what was really interesting is when I did go back. I noticed there were a lot of stone circles and stone um, recumbent stones and a lot of um, mounds and mounded earthworks that, of course, as a young man, I was not mm-hmm. I was not, you know, looking for, nor did I understand at that time. So so there's a lot more features to the landscape than I had realized um, as a young as a young man at that time. So so anyway, we got dumped off at the caravans 
And uh, obviously, immediately, you know, your heart sinks because you think, oh, my God, what have I what have I got myself into here? You know, and the caravan next to us, they kind of shuffling around as we arrived. And these three guys emerged and they were New Zealanders from a from a they'd been working in a building site in London, spent all their money on the nightlife and and couldn't get back to New Zealand. So they had to had, find another job. So they found this awful tree planting job along with us. And we're trying to save up for their tickets to get back to New Zealand. At least that's what I remember. So we had some company at least there for a little while. So um, the ground was frozen at first, so we didn't really have a lot of opportunity to plant. So it was sporadic. We weren't making any money. The planting was actually much more difficult than we had been told. You'd cut this kind of V-notch in the earth and then drop the seed, drop the little sapling in, close the V-notch. But what the gaffer would do was he'd come around at the end of the day and just pull all the trees out that you hadn't planted right. And you'd have to go back the next day and plant them all again. So so you wouldn't get paid for that second time. So there was a lot of, a bit of a learning curve on it and very frustrating. So you get a couple of days of planting, then it would be canceled because the ground would be too hard. Then you get a couple of days of planting and so forth. So it's quite a frustrating time. Um, so, you know, in the meantime, we would we would walk to the village to get food and things like that. So, which is, if I remember rightly, it was a fairly long walk from the site to the to the village where there was a phone box at that time. So I could call back to my girlfriend and back home to my parents and let them know how I was doing. So everything was going along, you know, pretty depressing, but you know, it's like anything, you can sort of get used to it. Um, bunch of hippies appeared in a silver bus on the run from, uh, they, were, they were English guys. They were on the run from the law, or at least one of them was from, from an arrest um, down in England for some drug charge. So so there was a, a motley crew there uh, eventually um, mm. of us sitting there. But it was really um, into the, maybe it's hard to remember exactly how long into this that the event took place, but it was the middle of the night and it was a very cold there. You had to, we had to kind of use polythene bags and tape them together to put over our sleeping bags to try and provide a little bit more heat. Mm-hmm. It was very, very cold, and we had cheap sleeping bags, you know. And uh, I probably weren't eating very much too, so you know, probably not in a great shape. But so I was lying there in the middle of the night, and I was sleeping, and I woke up, clutching at my at my throat. I couldn't. I couldn't breathe and it was as if the the air pressure inside the caravan had had suddenly changed and had become dramatically heavy and almost fluid like it was a little bit like being plunged underwater mm-hmm. um all of a sudden it was a very very um diso- disorientating experience of being feeling this pressure suddenly around my body particularly face throat and it had a burning this the viscosity viscosity of it had a sort of burning quality to it and a sort of sulfurous quality to it which was um very alarming to have this feeling of being noticing you're being pressurized going in a panic about that and then realizing that there was a burning sensation accompanied with it that got more and more pronounced and i at one point i realized that I wasn't really nest- I was choking, but actually whatever it was 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 actually entering my body. It felt like this this pressurized fluid was actually 
going inside of my body and going into you know through my throat and into my body which was really um uh i was in an absolute sheer sheer panic and immediately my immediate thought was oh my god there's been a, a nuclear accident that there has been a an accident at dune ray and and you know we're all we're all we're all going to die this is this is it we're dying you know because the mind tries to make sense of these things and and totally. you know it was on my mind the nuclear thing i you know i had passed dune ray um that was very much on my mind and you know everybody was aware of the inst you know we were all feeling a little insecure about that so that was a logical place in the middle of a panic to go to if you could even use the word logic so so of course that was happening but there were odd things going on that where this pressure was actually as if entering into my body so it started to feel like my interior was being crushed and and that's where things started to get really really weird for me i thought you know i was realizing that i was being crushed almost like every cell was being compressed it's a very very hard feeling to describe and i've never really been successful at fully been able to describe this but like every cell in your body was actually going through a compression at the same time and it was about at that point where i where i sensed an intelligence i sensed an awareness to this compressive force that it, that it, it was behaving in an intelligent way and the intelligent the intelligence was not just inside of my body somehow it was also around the caravan in the air and surrounding me um and that was where that was terrifying to feel that there was an, an intelligence to this process that was orchestrating something that was causing me an enormity of suffering so i began to kind of realize that this presence was, it was almost like it was circling like an animal encircling the caravan that was my interpretation at the time were you in this van yourself or was your friend in this van with this is the, this is the interesting thing that you well that i'll get to in a little bit was ewan was 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 across the other side of the caravan mm -hmm. sleeping there of course i had lost all awareness of of him of the caravan i was simply in this space of being compressed mm -hmm. in this kind of sulfurous burning sort of atmosphere but there was there was the pressure continued to increase to such an extent that it became um there was there's a realization i think that any organism realizes when it's when it's when it's under threat mm -hmm. all organisms realize this on some really deep level and and I, for me there was a realization that that this was an untenable situation that there was no way that there was going to be a good outcome to this that it was actually a potentially i was going to die and it was it was interesting how quick that thought came uh, because it was so dramatic and so extreme but this density continued and continued for, for a, quite a bit further. It's hard to estimate how long this actually took place. But at one point, I remember sort of finding my way to the floor of the caravan and realizing that somehow some part of me realized or wanted to confront or somehow get some kind of contact with this being, some way of understanding what was what the agency what the, the intelligence was that was causing the suffering. And I remember getting to the door and the thing was off the hinges and trying to peer into the darkness. Of course, there was nothing to see, but just this all pervasive intelligence, this, this 
incredible, powerful intelligence, something that, I have, of course, I've never encountered before. Um, so uh, the density continued to the point where I felt myself almost, be, uh, the only way to describe this is as if I was turned inside out, as if the intensity had become so extreme that the only place to go for my consciousness was out. Mm-hmm. It was the only, it was the exit point, what, what it seemed like to me, almost as though I was ejected out of matter, mm-hmm. like sort of ejected beyond the realm of matter into whatever kind of space one could imagine. Um, and it was a disembodied space, no question, that I had entered. And I, to myself, even thinking back now, I was aware that this was a place that was, that had a, a depth to it, that there was a place here that I could travel into and that it was preferable than the compression that I was, that I had been involved in or I had been subjected to. So I felt myself being kind of drawn further into this, into this space that felt actually quite vast, almost billowy. So I felt as though I was being kind of, my consciousness was being turned and moved and shifted and shaped. Uh, it was actually quite, there was an element of comfort to it compared to what I had just experienced. And there was an acceptance at that moment of, of death, of there's, this is, there's no return to an incarnate space. This is, you know, this is, this is the equivalent of dying here. And there was a strange, calm acceptance of that, actually, which was really amazing how, how dramatic an experience can be on the one hand, and yet there's this acceptance of death on the other hand. I think the organism knows when it's done. So as I was passing through, and obviously disembodied at this point, passing through this place, I felt it was almost as if the only way I can describe this was like the intelligence of that being, of that, what I call the sulfur demon now, mm-hmm. the intelligence of that being reaching into this realm of death, if you like, and saying, oh no, and gra- almost as though it had grabbed me and hauled me back into this more embodied place of suffering. So I felt this drawing back, this kind of painful sort of pulling of a ripping actually sensation of being ripped back into this realm of, of matter mm-hmm. and whereby the pain continued at the same, if not worse. And there was a kind of stillness. There was a point where everything went to a pause. And, it, and when I write about this or talk about it, it's a little bit like imagining a, a prey, but imagining a, you know, something like a, a serpent, like a cobra, some kind of animal that is it has a, a fast strike coming into that point of balance before it makes the final strike against its prey, you know, like a bird of prey or something like that. There's a still point there. There's a moment of pregnancy. There's a moment of presence, of stillness. So being in that stillness, I thought, well, some yeah, I'm about to experience something else that, you know, to me was also equivalent to death. But just as that was about to happen and that, there's a feeling of power and presence and, and, and immense presence, immense power and stillness. There was an enormous bang, enormous clapping sound, like a thunderous kind of sound. And I was returned to the, I think I must have been somewhere halfway up or something, but I was 
back on the floor, realizing that I was still actually in a body. There was still something of a body there. I had first not very little sensation of it. The burning sensation started to dissipate. And I began to realize and I moved my, I was able to move my fingers gradually, move my toes, realize that actually my body was actually still intact, despite what had appeared, had seemed to have happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the immediate, the immediate, the immediate response was emotion of, of intense crying and, and release uh, and finally crawling back into the sleeping bag. Just with sheer exhaustion, I think I must have eventually fallen asleep. And in the morning, I, I looked around, everything was normal. Ewan was already up and he was brewing some tea. He's already smoking his morning joint, you know, which he did perpetually and was making a little brewing some tea and I you know felt exhausted absolutely exhausted and I went and sat next to him on the little caravan table you know these old-fashioned caravans the wee table and I said to him did you did you did anything weird happen for you last night was there anything odd happen so, you know, he was like, what? And I said, you know, did, did, some, did you get something come and visit you or did something come at you in the caravan? He said, well, you mean, you know, like a ghost or something? You know, he was kind of making light of it. And I said, no, no, no. And then I thought, you know what? I, it's, it's just, I, I, don't, I didn't have the words at that time to describe. And he just kind of didn't really, he didn't really pursue it. It was just like, well, you know, maybe he had a bad dream or something, you know. Mm-hmm. So I remember after that, I thought, okay, I'm going outside. There was a little bit of snow and I thought I'm going outside because if there was something there, you know, in your naivety, you think to yourself, there has to be some kind of evidence. Of course, when I was a very young man at the time, I think if I think back now, what age would I have been? 23 years old, you know, just out of art college, you know. So I'm out there looking for footprints, thinking you know, in my mind that there must be some evidence. Of course, I found absolutely nothing in the snow. And you know, there was a darkness after that. There was a there was a a, a dampening mm-hmm. on my being from that moment. You know what had happened? What the hell was that? Nobody else. The, the New Zealanders seemed fine. Ewan was fine. What was that? What on earth was that? And we didn't last too much longer at that planting because it was it was too much hard work and you know couple of art students who are not fit for the New Zealanders were in better shape than us. They were working on a building site. We are p- pretty pathetic, you know, not really very physical. So um, eventually we just chucked it and uh, they chucked it too, actually, the New Zealanders. But we went back to Edinburgh and I was just not right. I was not right. And I've written about this in the book. There's a lot more detail about this in the in the memoir, which eventually will will be published, but there's a lot more, you know, dialogue with my girlfriend at the time. She was concerned about, you know, trying to tell people what was had happened and realizing that nobody, people just would, they couldn't even take it in. They couldn't, it was like, there was no, there was nobody really able to listen Mm -hmm. adequately to that story. 
it just felt like you were an insane person to even bring it up, you know. So there was a lot of bottling up, a lot of a lot of trying to manage that myself. And that was tough, trying to, you know, internalize that, figure it out with no language. I didn't know anything about the occult. I had no I was a I was interested in Marxism at the time, Marxist aesthetics. I was I was in my head reading these intensely philosophical books on aesthetics. That was my trajectory as an artist. It's not that I hadn't been a sensitive kid because I was. I mean, I was an artist. I was always very gifted as a as a as a creative being. Mm-hmm. But the whole notion of the occult is a different thing. It's a different trajectory. It's a whole different. I had no clue, and um, I got iller, more and more ill. I started to smell burning, and the burning was coming from me. It's coming from my skin. My hair started to fall out. Um, my skin turned a kind of strange yellow color. I, I was not looking very good. My balance started to go. I couldn't tell if the ground was moving beneath my feet or stationary. It was a very, very, very dark time. I started to see what I call in the book breaches in space where, where I might be talking to you right now here but actually behind me in this room I would have no idea of the depth that was behind me I would have a sense of an enormity of a vista that was dark and going endlessly behind me and threatening to either pull me in or you know sort of suck me in basically Mm -hmm. I'd often have these what I call bifurcated experiences where I would always be perceiving and this is a schematized way of looking at it but it's almost like you take a line between two eyes really, and you're seeing one reality with one eye and another with another eye. Hmm. It's not exactly how it happened, but that's the only way I can describe it. It was almost like a polarization of vision. So I I would be actually beholding something dark and endless with strange forms to it, and yet seeing this world simultaneously Hmm. and having to try and bring these two worlds together in, in everyday experience, which was actually painful it's actually created physical pain so emotional pain of course psychological pain with a lot of physical pain so my body began to really lose its tolerance you know there was a lot of you know pains that people could talk about that would be associated with all kinds of other inflammatory diseases or you know Lyme disease all of these kinds of things so I was in I was in really, really bad shape. I was losing weight. My muscle mass was falling away from me. I didn't really have an awful lot to start. I've always been quite a slight person, um, but I was losing muscle mass that I could not afford to lose, you know? And bear in mind, this is a young man who's in the prime of life, mm-hmm. going downhill really, really fast. And people were beginning to notice. That's when people began to notice. Um even though now I'll talk to people about it now, I've tried to, you know, you do research and you try and go back and speak to people and they're like, yeah, yeah, I knew you were struggling, but gosh, I didn't understand. I didn't realize it was that bad for you. You know, I hadn't realized you were going, it was particular. So, you know, you don't really know what people are, how you people are perceiving you during these kinds of events. You feel like death. You imagine everybody sees you that way. Hmm. But, you know, you talk to many people who are ill and, you know, in my practice, I see this a lot. And, you know, people manage with intolerable in, in illnesses and, and you know and the rest of the world might not really know it so 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 well and also it's a survival strategy i mean you're to, to to let out too much to let too much away to let too much out of the bag it kind of weakens you makes you more fragile because then you get judged and you know all of that happens absolutely yeah 
you know, you might be insane in my case. You're you're crazy, you know. And and at the time, I was working with a non-profit, an arts non-profit in Edinburgh with adults with mental illness. So I was actually working with adults with highly complicated mental health issues while I was going through this. So it was like a living hell on many kind of levels, you know. Um, and eventually I, I, I couldn't work anymore. I was struggling to, to, I couldn't get to work on time. I never got to work on time. I was starting to get in trouble. I was not paying bills. I was, I was struggling with everything. Everything became an impossibly difficult task. Um, the smell of burning was following me everywhere. It's almost like the presence of that being hadn't left me. There was an imprint to that to that presence that I just couldn't shake, and it was destroying me slowly. So I remember asking for a job share. I said to my boss, "I can't, I can't do this anymore." And it was then I had to tell him the story. He said, "Well, I can't. I know you're struggling, but I want to try and understand." And he was a great guy. He's a Dutch guy. And it was way out of his comfort zone, but he tried his best to understand. <laughs> Here's this young person trying to articulate a story. So I told him the story and, uh, and um, he said to me, um, I, I, I can't, honestly, it seems insane to me. I can't make head or tail of it, but I believe you. Mm-hmm. you know, he believed me, which was really important to me at that time. So he took it to the board of directors, and I'll move on after this because this is a, an interesting little juxtaposition. He, he took it to the board of directors who said, um, he sounds crazy, we need to have him assessed. <laughs> so ironically, I had to go to the Royal Edinburgh Hospital and be assessed by the head psychiatrist who happened to be have been a member of the board on the organization I was working for. <laughs> So it was really, really odd to be going into an office and having my sanity assessed. Mm-hmm. And all the, 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 all the guy that he had, he was an art lover. You know, he was interested. Obviously, that's why he'd been on the, the, the board of this direct, uh, directors. And he had uh, images of um, Dutch landscapes behind him on a court board in his office. And he said, to, he, he tested me on my knowledge of art, basically. That was his way of deciding my sanity. You know this painting, and he pulled postcards off and handed them to me. Who's this? Luckily, I, I knew actually enough for him to be satisfied, and he just kind of washed his hands of me. It was clearly like well, this guy's not mad, mm-hmm. and um, so therefore I was able to cut my hours down and, and begin to manage. And that's where I met this woman who realised I couldn't live alone in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. She showed up one day with a bunch of cardboard boxes. She, wonderful woman. Uh, children's book illustrator who's now now a midwife down in um, Bristol so she um, showed up at my house a bunch of boxes and moved me out to East Lothian mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> that was where I um, was first uh, introduced to the yew tree and this woman had said to me look you know I was not going out she said very much she said you really I'd like you to go out this friend of mine he's a tree surgeon he's going to take you to the pub introduce you to some people get you some make you some you could do with some friends out here Mm -hmm. we went to the pub there was a lock-in in the pub you know how it goes i was you know still a relatively young man at the time i hadn't been drinking alcohol which i had actually been doing to try and negate some of the effects of my illness so i had been abusing alcohol a little bit as well at that time so she'd helped me clean up a bit so i'd gone down there and uh, we ended up going up to the tree about three in the morning, it was a very bright moon that night. And 
going through these this old estate, this old Victorian estate, where the grass it had been kept. The grass was waist high at places. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like a a, play, a world I had never encountered. As, um, and you know, my descriptions of it in the book are kind of juxtaposed to a working working class person's understanding of Scotland. You know, of the Scotland that I knew mm-hmm. was concrete, no trees barely any lawns when we moved to our place we moved to we didn't even have grass it was just mud the grass was just seeded at the time you know it was a it was a kind of a rough environment and you know to to go to this victorian opulence and to be going through this grass and then to come to this shape that was this giant black shape and the tree surgeon said okay here we are this is the you and i'm thinking what am i doing i'm exhausted i'm i need to just rest and he just was a strong guy. He just got a hold of me and he pushed me through this hole, essentially, which was quite low. So I had to crouch and suddenly I'm in a cold tunnel. And I think, what on earth is this? And I'm moving through this tunnel, it's cold. Every time I try and stand up, I get pierced by branches. I realize it's branches. It's a tree of some kind. Mm-hmm. So after about 40 feet, I'm going through this tunnel. I have to basically walk hunched over. So eventually I find these metal rails, pull myself through these old rails, and I realize I can stand up. And I, in the light of the moon, I see that I'm in a chamber. This, this looks like there's one way in and one way out, and that's where I've just been. Hmm. And in the center, I see a column. And I think, gosh. So I walk over. It's the trunk of the U. And I, I look up, and I see that all the branches are growing from about 12, 15 feet up. And they're growing in these great arches, like cathedral arches, down back in, back to the floor again, and then continuing, and then forming what looks like a peripheral forest that's sealing in this space. Mm-hmm. So I realize I'm inside this chamber, this kind of, what I now describe as a kind of inverted cauldron, you know, of a branch, an inverted cauldron of branch contortion, or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. So of course, I touch the you, and I have this feeling that, it's an immense feeling of familiarity and a feeling that I've, I've come home, I've arrived. I'm now, I'm home. And I couldn't explain it at the time, but I just knew somehow I was home. And this was familiar territory to me. So he kind of came in after, afterwards, explained a little bit about what this being was, how old it was, that it was female, that it was a female expressed tree, which was kind of mind boggling to me. And um, the next morning I knew that I needed to go back there. Mm. And I went back and that's where a whole new set of experiences began that led over a nine and a half to 10 years period of between 93 and 2003 to a period of, uh, of healing and actually learning and experiencing a number of beings associated with that you that were actual teacher beings, which is a very strange thing to say, but but uh, that you know other people refer to as the shining ones or you know to a didanan or whatever you want to call them, you know. But these were very these were beings of intelligence that um, I felt were reconstructing me to a certain extent and helping me to regain my health. And in a different way, though, in a way that was that, that was somehow different, you know, it doesn't mean anything powerful, you know, there's no claim to anything like that. 
in many ways, going through all the experiences I went through made me a hundred times more vulnerable in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a, there's a kind of sensory surface that that was developed that allows one to see and to sense in a more of a clairvoyant, clairvoyant fashion. Mm-hmm. But, but, but there's also a vulnerability that comes with that. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not some Superman type of power. It's the, quite the reverse. So, so there was a lot of managing vulnerability as 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 that part of that healing process as well, and being able to learn to live with that. Mm-hmm. So I'll pause there because there's a whole there's a whole other multiple chapters of of that healing process that took place mm-hmm. after that. So so I'll pause to let you. I've got a lot of questions, guy. Yeah. So uh, that's great. Uh, it's totally amazing story and uh, really interesting. Um, going going back to um, the caravan. Yeah. And in regards to like, a few questions in that. So when when this entity type, whatever you, you call it, the sulfur demon, now you call it that, or is that yes. you call it now? Yeah. Um, you never, you didn't at any point see structure to it, or did you feel structure to it? Or yeah, I the, the structure the structure was was the to me was the the transformation of the air was the density. Mm-hmm. The density had an the density and the intelligence were the same thing. It was almost as though the, the structure was the mind of the being. Mm-hmm. That it had control of matter, it had control of of elementally of what was around it. Mm-hmm. So it was a fluid being, though. It wasn't like a kind of a geometric type of, you know, sort of quantum type of stuff. I mean, that's just information. This was a living type of a living being, a sort of fluidic being whose mind was the very pressure that it was exerting. When you, I'd say, well, you, at that point, you, you left your body to go to some other place, or do you think that your own consciousness made that happen, or do you think this thing expelled your, your consciousness from your body? What, what, do you, what do you think? Good question. It's a good question. That, that, I pondered that for a long, long time. And you know, things change, you know, one's interpretation changes as you get older and you start to see things, understand things differently. Now I feel that 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 being needed to destroy the matter of my body in a sense and eject me out. In order order to do that, I had to be ejected out so that in some ways so that I wouldn't die. What I thought was death probably in a sense was the early stages of death in a way that I was pushed into. But there was something around there was something around around experiencing the death of matter in myself mm-hmm. somehow i needed to experience that it was like a teaching somehow that i needed to experience the death of matter not just for myself but the death of matter period what that meant and uh, somehow over the years i managed to be able to link that to you know uh, i won't I don't want to go into that right now unless you really want to but the, the whole notion of nuclear fission and the way that Human beings have created new states of matter by, by that nuclear process. You know, matter that didn't exist before. It was almost as though the demon was was showing me a level of matter that was below the threshold of spirit. Something that had be, had fallen into a dark place mm-hmm. that was that would that needed to somehow be worked with or needed, and I needed to experience it, but in my own body. So it's, there, there's 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 more to say about that, but that's maybe all I'll say for now around that. Do Do you think that this thing was um, generated from that place where where you were. You think it was part and parcel? It was something to do with the time and place, or 
do you think it was you particularly, no, regardless of where you would be? So do you think it was to do with the place or partly to do with the place? Or do you think it was it was yourself as the target? Or do you think it was opportunistic because you were in the place? Good, yeah, these are great questions. I think it was I think it was specific to the location, but I also think that it was that there was a certain relationship to me that was specific too. So I think I was probably drawn to be there um, in a way that I, I'll probably never comprehend. But that being, I'm certain, was specific to that location. Mm. And, you know, when I've been writing about it and thinking about it over the years and trying to, you know, communicating as best I can with that, with that experience and, 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 you know, where it went from there, my sense is that that being was neither, it wasn't an evil being. Mm-hmm. It was a being I, th- I feel now very strongly that was the best way to describe it would be like an ancient guardian of the earth. Mm-hmm like an ancient intelligence that, that when I was onto it, I think when I, when, I, when, the word, when I was describing the kind of sulfur aspect to it, it was almost as though it was a being that had existed on the ancient earth before the earth became what it is today. And um, somehow that being was, was, had become immersed into the earth's development as a kind of a guardian. Um, and I, I suspect that there are others of these kinds of beings, but I have a feeling that again, this is my working hypothesis, that, that the being had come to the surface, if you like, in response to events maybe that were going on in the world at that time mm-hmm. around nuclear fission and around the, the Chernobyl the year before. Because we know, we know that a lot of particulates have come over Scotland and over the Western Isles. So we were part of that. And, and uh, not, not in it, needed, not, you know, it could have been elsewhere, but we were still in that vicinity. But I have a feeling now that might change. Maybe I'll maybe I'll be given some revelations that will change that. But right now, in, in as limited a way as you know, as, as we all are, that's my best get. That's my best hypothesis that that being was somehow linked to the area and somehow linked as a guardian, and somehow linked to to actually Dune Ray in some way. That, that kind of for some of the kind of um, what you spoke about there, kind of answered some of the questions I was going to answer next. Sorry, ask next. Um, did your opinion change of this entity through time? Like maybe when it, when you maybe were younger and this maybe happened, did you see it maybe as potentially evil then? And then as time go on, you have seen it as a teaching or a or a kind of a learning or 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 kind of showing you something. Yeah, great, 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 uh, great comment. I think. I think yes, it changed. I mean, I was I was brought up a Catholic, and and although I resisted it constantly, it wasn't just not a good match for me. But you know, it still gets to you, you know. And I think that that notion of evil was in there somewhere for me as a young man. That that you know, why me? Why had I been punished like that? Why did I have to go through that when I should have been in my prime? I was struggling with my health, you know. I mean, why? I'd look around me, and I was very envious of, of other people you know, who were able to do things that I couldn't do at that time. Mm. So, so as I, as I got older and I started to realize that, you know, my gosh, there's languages out there that can help me to understand this, you know, the language of healing was one, but the, the language of the occult was another, you know, um, and I began to study and I began to do a lot of research and I began to see 
my own experience reflected in slightly different ways, but I began to see mm, there's something here that's that's about that's that's not just personal. There's something here that's personal, but there's something here that's also transpersonal. Something about a process. Something about something here that that is is more than just about me. You know, um, uh, and uh, you know whether I was looking through Irish mythology or Welsh myth mythological material whether I was looking in Sumerian material, whether I was, you know, um, you know, looking at things clairvoyantly myself, whatever, however it was. Um, yeah, I began to, I began to do multiple, multiple times of kinds of research to, to try and understand it. So yeah, my, my, my sense changed and the notion of evil sort of dropped away quite a bit. Yes. And the sense, the sense that came was more like, you know, there was a there was a, a sort of two way two two processes there. There was a one of destruction. It's a simplistic way of putting it. This is not necessarily what, how I would write about it, but for for the time we have, you know, it was like more of a you know a process of 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 of, of, of destruction, and then and then this process with the U of actual reconstruction and, and rebuilding and healing. So it felt like there was there was there was two, you know, two you know polarity there that was that was. Mm -hmm. When you went back and you said there was potentially some earthworks there as well, um, in that area. So did you not see them at the time you, when you were there prior, eh, when you were doing the work there and stuff? But you see, you see that after there was earthworks there. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, as I said to you, I mean, I was not. I mean, I was amazed actually when I went back with what I know now. <laughs> you know, just those few years ago, I was shocked actually at how different it was. The landscape was to, to my memory of it yeah you know there were way more features than i'd seen it as this flat you know as i said to you at the beginning of this landscape that was like the psalm or something like this you know awful trench you know trenches where you're planting trees and oh it was mud everywhere as far as the eye could see but it's not it wasn't like that at all when i went it must have just you know your younger perspective but i went back there were little windy roads with 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 um you know uh with earthworks mounds um, you know, clackeries, uh, mostly recumbent stones that you actually would have to kind of get out the car and yeah. what's that there? You know, having an eye for it, as you know yourself, where you start to get an eye for these features in the landscape and you start to read it like a map. You read it as a text and, and you get skilled at that. You know, you get very skilled. I've, I've had so much experience here in the USA of reading the landscape here, which is utterly fascinating, by the way, the the, the, the level of stoneworks and earthworks here round round where I am. There's a balanced rock right near my house, for example, that is probably, you know, from 5000 BC, BCE. So there's, there's, there's immense things. So you can learn to read these things. So I think I was, um, I was uh, clueless about that when I was 23. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you, um, I noticed obviously you, you didn't really, um, divulge it to much people obviously because it's mid 80s you know what i mean it's, it's hard even these days to talk about it's, it's a lot more um, accepted to talk about things these days but back then i could it's understandably quite hard to talk to anybody and also about the work you were doing as well at the time which made it even more difficult for you so when after that when you um this kind of lady kind of took you under her, her shoulder type thing and and um and supported you and then when this tree surgeon took you to the the yew tree 
was did he have a a, a good understanding? Obviously, the um, the mysteries involved with it as well and stuff, or was it just part and parcel that did he know um, what he was doing in that sense? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes it makes it really does make sense. Yeah, yeah. I've often wondered what what was going on for him because he was a uh, he was you know tree surgeon. He had some bot botanical knowledge, and you know he understood the morphology of the yew, so he could, and he appreciated that tree deeply. That's why he wanted to take me uh, mm. to the tree. There's actually another. There was other circumstances around that, but I won't go into that just now. But um, he. Um, he was very, very impressed by the by the you, and called it a wonder of the world. I distinctly remember him saying, "Welcome to a hidden wonder of the world." He was proud to take people there, mm -hmm. and I think, in some level, he was one of these, you know, one of these people that we meet a lot. You know that, and this is no, this is not a judgment because this is just the way it is. That you know, we see somebody having a trajectory to their life. They're actually quite a sensitive person. But they've not really been in the had circumstances around them that have really allowed that to be supported. So, so, so they're you know they 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 kind of have it, but it's they have to keep it keep a keep keep a cap on it. So, I think he was a, a sensitive man, um, but he couldn't let that out. He was sorry. He was a man in a man's world, you know. Yeah. I, knew, I knew a lot of the guys, and they were all they were all beer drink, beer swilling, big dudes who you know, just you know were all it was all about the usual conversations that these kinds of guys have you know so so yeah but i think he had a sensitivity to it but not to the level that 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 i couldn't really share with him anything like that yeah you know? um but you know but he did have an estimate of the age he he did understand how old that tree was that it was to him was way over a thousand years old and that that was controversial at the time my personal belief is it's much much older than that hmm. but but um, nowadays, there's a kind of conservative streak to understanding yews that's going on, that's trying to be more scientific. And I support it to a certain extent. But what it's done is it's kind of drawn, pulled down the ages of the yews that people have surmised them to be. Um, so, you know, you know, I won't even go into what I think it is. But, but let, let's say that Bob thought it, this guy, Bob, thought it was a thousand or more years old. Uh, but I su suggest way older. However... The old lord that this going back to the opulence of this place. This is a Victorian. This is a Victorian um, walled state. You know, a state that was very rich at the time, owned by the Balfours, mm -hmm. and Lord Balfour was still alive. Oh. Was, uh, it's called Whittingham Estate. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Lord Balfour was uh, still alive at that time. Um, so I I got to know Lord Balfour because he was friendly with the woman who had kind of you know brought me in, brought me yeah. to that area. So I got to know him and he was uh, he was quite a character because he could tell you stories about the U that he remembered from youth and things like that. But he he was convinced the U was only about seven hundred years old or things like that. So they more conventional sort of understandings. But but yeah. So when you so when you initial you had the, the initial um, visit there and. What drew you to keep coming back to it? And did you feel it was cleansing or healing you or um making a difference to your life in that sense to make you go back? So what 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 kind of brought you there and keep make you keep coming back? Yeah, that's yeah, it's interesting you say that because that's that's a big 
that's that was a that's a big piece actually because the comp there was there was a compelling to go back to the tree mm-hmm. and you know at first i wasn't entirely sure of what that involved but there was it was almost like a speech from the you into my blood mm-hmm. it was almost like being spoken to into your blood like a command mm-hmm. you shall come to see me you i'm pulling you sort of not entirely involuntary but close to that mm-hmm. to the point where i would have to go i would be it was almost like this kind of irritation in my blood that would pull me and i would have to go to the u whether it was nighttime or daytime so yeah there was a compelling in the blood and the blood became a vector the blood became a kind of a surface that started to get worked on under the u it was as though the u was able to kind of speak into my blood in a way that was actually healing ultimately and and transformative so a lot of the teaching i do now in the new mysteries is 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 we work we work a little bit with our our blood etherically not physically but we work with our blood the point of view of our awareness of it so um it it brought a lot it brought a lot of principle into my into my teaching and and of course it was the primary vector of my healing so so we're after the healing and then obviously what what um gave you the drive to to want to show other people or to help other people or to um kind of push forward with this for yourself i mean to, to bring it out to the people what was the kind of driving force behind that for you as well yeah good good question you know i mean you know the of course the experiences of the nine years had to be unfolded first you know so there was yeah. there was First three years were seizures. Next three years was a different tone of sort of more teacher beings. Last three years, more of a sort of consolidation period where I was beginning to actually regain or my health was different. You know, I felt as though I had kind of a different body than I had before. Uh, so after that, um, I had, I, you know, my visual art had kept me going, kept me sane actually mm-hmm. during that, during some of that time doing drawings from the East Lothian landscape, for example, um, helped my perception as well, because my perception was so fractured that orienting to the horizon while I was drawing was actually quite healing for me. Mm-hmm. And um, that has become a principle too. So I've, I write about that. That's actually quite a complex thing that, that I write about a lot in the book, actually, about what the function of the horizon, what is the horizon and how does it function? Mm-hmm. So anyway, that aside, I was working a lot with the drawing and um, a friend of mine had said to me, look, you know, your drawings are, she liked my drawings, let's just say. I, you know, there's this prize thing that is, and I'm answering the question, but I have to go a little bit in a circuitous way. I hope you don't mind. That's fine. That's fine. And so long story short, she, she encouraged me to apply for this painting, a landscape painting prize mm-hmm. or scholarship, you might want to call it, in the north of Vermont, USA. And I thought, you know, why would I? I mean, I've not had any track record. I've been sick all these years. There's all these hungry artists who've got shows here, shows there, selling work right, left and centre. They're going to dive on this thing. And, and I've got absolutely not a chance in hell of getting it. I got it. Bizarrely enough, I won it. Right. So I ended up in Vermont, you know, met a woman there who was, who was you know, my life had changed a lot. And the, the, the other person was no longer with me. I'd been on my own for a while and then going to the USA, I met this woman who ended up becoming my wife. She was American Mm -hmm. or she is American. And um, 
she came to live in Scotland for six months, was going to come and live with me in Scotland. There was an immigration issue at the airport with her coming back too much, too many times in the year. Mm-hmm. So she got booted out. I then had to, we had to make the decision, do we let it go or what, who, I have to, I had to move to the USA, mm-hmm. basically. So when I moved to the USA and I felt the you behind this, it was quite, for me, it was like, what, why would this happen? I'm just getting my health back. I'm just finding my way again. But I got this kind of communication from the you, not in a word language, but more in a visceral language that I've come to understand. The you speaks in a way that's not new age nonsense kind of speaking, you know, messages. It's none of that nonsense, you know. It's it's a it's a much deeper kind of visceral experience that you that then you have to kind of try and work with. It's a challenge with the you. It's not simplistic. It's not giving you in a, in, a, in a simple message type of format. Although there are a few people now who are trying to do that, and that's a whole other thing. But we'll leave that for now. So um, I um, the you had said I said I will be here for this is my interpretation. I will be here for thousands of years more. You will not. I need you to go and take some of this into the world, which is my interpretation of it, you know. So it seems really grandiose, and that's, you know, way beyond what capacity I had. Came to the U.S. and um, started to get, people were curious. Oh, you know, who's this person? We moved to an intentional, like a, into a kind of pagan community, which I'd never experienced before, that kind of world. So we moved, well, I had a little bit in Scotland with the Beltane Fire Festival. I knew some people from that. I was making connections, but I was very isolated, but I was making connections. So, that, but this was a bigger kind of connection to this big pagan community in, in New England who sort of embraced me really quickly. Very, very, um, very, very loving and very quickly embraced me. I think as a Scottish person too, you're quickly embraced. You know, they want to know my story. They wanted to understand it. And they, they asked me if I'd like to come and teach at their events, you know. And I'm thinking, teach what, you know, you know, so I, all I could do was tell the story at that time. I didn't, I had nothing to teach. I had nothing to say other than the story and the way I told it at that time, you know. So I would told this story and gradually other people would invite me to do things. I got invited to write for magazines, shamanic magazines. People got to know about me. And gradually I was kind of called further and further to actually show up basically, you know, and, and, and make sense. And finally, Probably it was about 2014 or so. I was invited to go to Wales mm-hmm. and teach a circle of yous uh, by great friends of mine, David and Emma, who are plant medicine people, very prominent plant medicine people in the UK now in different places. But um, And they asked me to do a day on the you. And it was a circle of 12 yous in um, uh, a place called Lanfeugen Lan, Lan or Lan, Hanvegan or something like that. I can't, I've lost the pronunciation. <laughs> but, <laughs> and, and that was quite successful. And then we, we decided that we would bring, they would bring, want to bring me back. And they asked me if I could maybe try and stru- structure for a couple of days. And then we structured for, and out of that came this U Mysteries uh, training um, that I was able to, to, to start to, to build. Now, now there's actually a 720 page transcription of that work now. Uh, which is which uh yeah this is i mean you know you know we're the scots we can talk right i mean and um you know the work some of the work was done in seattle and believe it or not there are used there 
Mm -hmm. um, not as old, obviously, but some that are quite old further out on the Olympic Peninsula. So I started to bring the work even here in the US, not just in Wales, not just in Scotland. And uh, there was a following, small, small following. I'm talking small numbers here. Mm -hmm. You just attracts the people that she wants to herself. It's not like a big thing. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the people there, a lot of people are very dedicated and one wanted to transcribe all of it. She recorded everything and coordinated me going there and then transcribed it. So there's now this kind of big 720 page transcription of all of this stuff. So, um, and I, you know, you see when you look at that, how much principle and how much has come out of the, 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 the experience. So it's, it's quite heartening to see that. So one day that will become a book of some kind too, but I'm not there yet. You know, so. going, going back to, um, the like you see the history of it. I mean, so I was, I've never really been aware of it in the past. And um, was there like, types of followings in the past with you as well? So, what can you kind of discuss with that? Great. I mean, you're asking great. You're asking all the perfect questions here. And I think filling the, for filling the gaps, and it's really important. You know, first of course, I had no idea about how deep the U is in our history, mm -hmm. and it turns out that it's absolutely massive. It penetrates almost every aspect of who we are um, to places, names of rivers, names of hills, names of towns. Um, you know, it's, it's quite, quite extraordinary how it, where it shows up. So I began to see that there was a, that a lot of places in the UK were, were named after, named after the U. York, for example, in, in uh, England, mm -hmm. um, was known by that was as Romanized as it was um, Eboracum from the from the from the original their version of the original language, and Eboracum means you stronghold. Hmm. So so what's kind of interesting is that New York City is actually New You City, and you've got York and you know and there's there's a multitude of rivers and hills and things like that named after them, and a friend of mine Janice Fry who I did, who I met through my work we got, we were put together. Very few of us, more people now interested in the U through her work, my work, and a few of, of others. She's been doing this for a long time. Janice for almost 40 years now or more. Mm -hmm. um, Janice has written some books on the U where she's actually tracing back that we had UK, parts of Europe, were filled with U tribes, absolutely filled with U tribes, that the U was the sacred tree, was a sacred plant, and, and we were really led by it. Um, and that I've, I've even kind of heard, and it's not been fully verified, I haven't found full verification of this, but in the mystery schools at Alexandria, that these U mysteries were studied uh, because they, were, they wanted to preserve them. So these were looked at even apparently um, there. And of course, when all the mystery schools went underground, um, you know, with Christianity, then of course the U mysteries also themselves. So, so I often say to people that in a way, one can never go back and, and and recreate something as it was, but you can, you can, you can be ignited to to bring principles back in a with a new consciousness mm -hmm. to interface with them. We we don't we can't have the consciousness that people had two thousand years ago. It's not applicable to a modern human being. For us, it would be an illness to have that consciousness. We have a consciousness that we have now that we have to manage in a certain way. And so my job in a way was to take these mysteries through myself mm -hmm. and 
sort of reshape them in a way that could be comprehended by a modern human being, which mm -hmm. is me. You know, I'm the representative of that. I'm the one who's 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 here having to try and do this. So I often say to people that we're kind of we're you know reinventing something for the modern world that was lost two thousand years ago. So, mm -hmm. and I stand by that. I stand by that. You know, people are like, gosh, you know, how ridiculous. But no, I, my experience tells me, informs me that, that, that there's a shape, or there's a language there that needed to be shaped for modern times, you know. And that's the, the information's there. It's just tapping into it. I mean, that's, that's it. Right. Information's there, but it's not static, right? I mean, the information is there, but we have to interface with it in a way that's appropriate to our consciousness, mm -hmm. you know. Clairvoyance itself changes. We can't expect to have a download, and people use that word a lot, and mm. you know, in the new age parlance, you know. And, but that's not how it works. I mean, you have to, you have to write, you have to actually shape yourself sure. to be able to, to work with that, as you know. Um, and you know, a lot of the principles that in the U mysteries are about how do we work with our consciousness and our embodiment um, in a way that can provide us with new kinds of sensory organs. Where we can, when we go to a U, we can understand its language. You can't approach a U through your nervous system and through a grasping type of experience where you want information. You know, I say you, I mean generally one. one yeah. I hear that a lot of, you know, people want an experience or desperate for an experience, but 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 actually, what they mostly get is just a reflection of what they wanted. You know, so so I mean, you have to let that go. Your your consciousness has to be breathed by something else. And that's the, the job working with the you. You have to make way for its consciousness, not in a passive way, but in a way where you're actually shaping that and working with that and coming into contact with it. It's all about surfaces with the you. What surface can you develop in an embodied way that can actually be receptive to the language and the voice of the you? So that's the kind of work we've been doing now. So it's like I call them living mysteries. I say to people that, well, the you mysteries are a little bit different in a way because they're still alive. You know, because the sentinels who guard these mysteries are still alive on our planet. Mm -hmm. And these ancient sentinels are still there. When you walk into a used space, it changes your consciousness. If you're open to that, I mean, the U gives off an hallucinogenic toxin from its bark and its needles and everything. So you're actually, particularly one where I was in, which was a fully enclosed space, mm -hmm. you're actually entering a space which is actually um, mind-altering. Literally, there are tests have really not been done on that. The chemical analysis hasn't been properly done on that, other than anecdotal stories of you know people who could be respected in society, like a Japanese doctor who felt funny after being under his yew trees. But you know, my word would not be taken seriously scientifically, and there's not there's not been any, as far as I know, not been any scientific study of the actual hallucinogenic qualities. Mm -hmm. But it, but it's but it's it's been mentioned in many places. It's not just me. So there, there's, there's, there's a power there to alter the mind. How, how widespread is it across the world? Well, once would have been really massive. Now, um, I often say there's a link between the U and the iron. And if you follow the iron belt across the earth, you'll see a lot of locations of U's, interestingly. But um, North America has um, some small U's. Mexico has U's. Uh, Pacific Northwest has used, Sumatra has used, as far south as Sumatra, India, um, uh, quite m m much of Europe, of course, um, Turkey, 
the Black Sea Basin has one of the highest use stands, the highest density of use stands in the world. So they're, they're, they're around. And, you know, we've been suffering now a little bit from the cure for cancer, as you probably know, in the 60s, the National Cancer Institute here in the USA, when they were doing these extensive studies of many kinds of substances, plants and things to see what, which would bear fruit, so to speak. Yeah. The you the they realized was a potential cure for certain kinds of cancer. So for a while there, they were a tree that had been cut down mercilessly in the US as a trash tree became then a tree that was uh, coveted. Mm -hmm. And uh, it would, at one point it was taking the bark of six U's for one person's cancer treatment a year. Mm -hmm. So now they synthesize it through U needles. So now you have these U plantations, which are genetically accelerated to grow, you know, to grow quickly. So there's a diminishing of the gene pool there. So there's some concerns around that. But now at least it's synthesized from the needles and the trees are not being cut. But India lost about 90% of its use from the demand for taxanes for the wealthy world's um, cancer treatments. So, you know, there's a bigger message there. There's a bigger picture there. The U is, is certainly a, a being that's not out of danger. Mm -hmm. And I'm still, I still hear of, for example, there's a lot of churches in Wales that have U's around them. The churches are no longer tenable. They're being sold off privately. Mm -hmm. It suddenly becomes down to the owner what to do with the use. So, so there, we're 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 in a danger zone about the use here, and and you know more protections we could put on them the better. And that's what the the ancient U group are doing. A friend of mine, Paul Greenwood, he's he's been very very active uh, as a founder member and also trying to protect these trees. And um, I, I salute their work. Um, I'm not part of that, but I, I, but I, they probably would all think I was completely um, crazy. But they 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 are out there protecting the trees uh, now, trying to work in partnership with the churches. So when the church tries to get a, you know, do its own hackneyed work on oh that new branch needs cut, and they have no idea what they're doing. So yeah. they'll yeah. call in a local tree surgeon who has no idea, and the whole thing is a mess. So now they have to consult, I think, in certain areas. Don't quote me on that. I mean, I have to look, I'd have to give you the details, but there's certain partnerships with the church. So anyway, there's a good piece of information there, I think, that the U is not out of danger. When I was asking the question about um, how widespread it is in, in regards to, obviously, the U's, but is it as widespread with uh, the sensitivities towards the U in terms of what people feel about it and, and things like that. Is that widespread throughout other cultures as well as a European, um, maybe North American thing? So so are you saying that that the, um, if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that, it, it, is, is there the same awareness? Yes, yes. Of, right, I could, I could, I, or, yeah. how special, or, or how special they are? Is, is, is there yes, 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 yes. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's variable. In Japan, the, the U is called the, 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 the God tree. It's named in Japan. So Japan's still largely a pagan. It's just, you know, it's not Christianized. So there's, a, there's still this great protection. They have protection over their ancient U's. Mm -hmm. And they're regarded as very sacred. The emperor has a U staff, for example, in Japan. So, uh, and you see that's an old, that you can see in the ancient world, in the Irish stories, in the Welsh stories, you start to see the U show up every place. So we had it. But elsewhere, um, I've heard that I've heard that in Mexico, the contacts I've made who've come to the U Mysteries, what's great about teaching is people come who can give you information. So people in Mexico have talked about um, you, places that you that are regarded as quite sacred in Mexico. And so you know there 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 are there are other places, but it's it's few it's few and far between you know few and far between. 
So um, I wouldn't say it was a widespread awareness mm. of its sacredness, mm. definitely. But I might be wrong. You know? That's really interesting, though. It totally is. I actually find it fascinating. Um, in regards to, um, so if, if people want to find your website or find any information about you, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me on youmysteries.com, which is Y-E-W, as in you, mysteries.com. And, you know, the website is is a little is a little static at right now because of the last few years, but, you know, it will begin to look more dynamic. <laughs> but there's some wonderful photographs there, um, some wonderful bits and pieces of talks, and um, I encourage people who want to learn more, and a lot of text from me as well. Uh, about some of the history of the U and, and some of the occult history of the U. So there's still some really good, valuable information there. People want to look into that. And they can email me direct through that website if they want to ask a question or um, they have anything that's on their mind about the U or anything they want to share. No, I find it totally interesting. And um, I just, I think obviously going through the, the experience, the kind of awakening experience you had at the start and coming right through, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. And it's, um, the, if you obviously, if you're if you're back in Scotland again as well, um, and you're 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 doing anything here, let us know. I mean, we'll definitely come along and see you as well and stuff. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to meet you. I mean, I was thinking maybe this last time I was over, I would try and get in touch, but it was a little too quick of a trip. So mm-hmm. next time I'm back, I'll I'll definitely you and I will meet and we'll go to some use. Yeah, definitely. That was as I say that that day of contact day. It was it was funny because I'd never ever been down to I've been to Rosalind Castle, eh, Rosalind Chapel before. I'd never been into the castle. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's when I, I was kind of just checking a a a home ward of the dog. I took the dog down, and as I'm saying, there's 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 use down there. Um, yeah, so. There's there's probably quite a bit of connection with the Templar, the Knights Templar, and the use, mm-hmm. because there's a temple itself in 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 Midlothian where the where the headquarters of yeah. the Templars were. It's there's an avenue of use down there. Is so it? oh yeah. If I were, if you can go down, go down to Temple and find the old church down there, and and uh, there's a very extraordinary avenue of views down there. Wow. So whenever you see the, whenever you see activity of the Templars, you tend to find the U is not too far away. It's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. So that's maybe a story for another time. You know? Definitely. Well, when we get you back one again at some point, it's well, it'll be good. So awesome. Michael, yeah. thanks very much for your time. And um, I'll hopefully get you back on and we'll keep in touch. I mean, so. And a delight talking with you, Chris. Thanks very much for inviting me. See you.